Kia ora tātou. Uh, Nau mai, haere mai, tau iti mai. Uh, ko te mea tuatahi, uh, nei rātou mihi uh, ki te uh, tangata whenua o te wahi nei, uh, te, te hapu o ngai tuahureri, uh, rātou ko te iwe o ngai tahu, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, greetings, welcome to you all. Uh, it's a pleasure to see so many, many of you out here on a rubbish day, but um, <laughs> it's all right, we're going to try and keep you warm in here. Uh, we are here, of course, uh, to talk to you about curiosity, and we have with us uh, two of the most curious writers uh, I think our country <laughs> has produced in quite a while, um, and we'll have a chance for your curiosity as well, so uh, questions at the end. Um, first of all, I would like to introduce Paula Morris. Uh, Paula is uh, of Ngāti Wai heritage. She's the author of the collections Forbidden Cities and False River, uh, the essay collection on coming home, and seven novels, including Rangatira. Now, I don't know what you guys have been doing, but she's been writing seven <laughs> novels. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, Rangatira was the winner of the Best Fiction Book at the New Zealand, book, uh, the New Zealand Post Book Awards and also Ngā Kupu Ora Māori Book Awards. Uh, please welcome Paula. And I would also like to introduce uh, Tina Makareti. Uh, Tina is a fiction writer of Ngāti Tūwhare Tō, Te Aoteaua, Ngāti Rangatahi and Pākehā Descent. Her latest novel is The Imaginary Lives of James Pornicki. Uh, she's the co-editor of Black Marks on a White Page, uh, the anthology, and her short story, Black Milk, won the 2016 Pacific Region Commonwealth Short Story Prize, uh, which is a really big deal, uh, 5,000 entries, I reckon. So. Yeah, uh, please welcome Tina. Mm. And just very briefly, in case you're wondering who on earth I am, uh, my name is Nick Lowe. I'm an author, Christchurch born and bred, uh, and very delighted to be here with you all. Uh, and I'm also Ngai uh, Tahu from Murihaki from the South. Uh, we're going to start with a reading, actually. I think just because we've got two books here in particular, uh, uh, which have a lot in common, we've also got uh, uh, two diverse voices here. So just to give you a flavour of, of their words, how they sound, um, I'm going to kick it off with a bit of a reading. So, Paula. Sure. Tina spilled water on my book in an act of sabotage. <laughs> she, she's going to review my book, so I'm I just, just getting told her that. It was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and they're about to go on She's never going to hear together. the end of it. <laughs> So I'm going to read uh, a piece from False River, which is my collection of stories and essays. I'm just going to read a little bit of, of one called Great Long Story. And uh, Tina and Witi Ihmaira put it into um, black marks on the white page because I told them it was a short story, but I was lying as an essay. Uh, and this is a book about lying, so it's good mm -hmm. that I too am lying. Nothing we say here tonight. Exactly. Uh, at the graveside of Robert Johnson, I was stung on the neck by a bee. Halloween. I stood reading the historic marker at the cemetery just north of Greenwood, Mississippi. On the other side of the road, a field of stubby cotton. The ground was muddy, waterlogged around the pecan tree. It had poured with rain the night before when I was doing a book signing in Oxford. I wore a long chain around my neck, silver, dangling a silver globe. It's this one. Something touched my throat, something that wasn't the chain, I reached up with one hand to brush it away. A piece of fuzz, I thought, until I registered the pain of the sting. The red welt kept growing and throbbing. I was having an allergic reaction. We had to drive to Walmart on the west side of town to get antihistamine cream. Robert Johnson sent a bee to sting you, said my husband. You stood too close to his grave. Nobody knows anymore exactly where Robert Johnson is buried. At Walmart, a woman approached my husband and asked him the kind of question someone asks a pharmacist. He is a white man, like the pharmacist. At that moment, in the pharmacy section of Walmart, he was the only white man anywhere in sight. She seemed to think he was the actual pharmacist. I wondered when the red welt on my neck would stop growing and itching and hurting. We had to drive to Jackson for another book signing at four. My book was a ghost story. It was Halloween. The gravestone at the cemetery just outside Greenwood may or may not mark the spot where Robert Johnson is buried. Even if he's buried in that cemetery, he may not be buried under the pecan tree. He may be buried near the historic marker where a bee stung me on the neck. 
At Walmart, my husband approached the pharmacist behind the counter and asked if we were buying the right kind of antihistamine cream. The pharmacist said that we could buy meat tenderizer instead and make it into a paste. This would draw out the sting. But we had lingered at the cemetery where Robert Johnson may or may not be buried. And then we'd driven around looking for a pharmacy. It was too late for the paste to work. We had waited too long. Robert Johnson lay dying for three days. Nobody knows exactly where Robert Johnson died. Some people say that he was carried from Three Forks to a house in Baptist Town and that he died there. Some people say that he was carried from Three Forks to a house on the Star of the West Plantation and that he died there. Some people say that he was carried from Three Forks to the house in Baptist Town and later to a house on the Star of the West Plantation. His death certificate reads, Greenwood, outside. Robert Johnson lay dying for two or three or four days. He died on August 16th, a Tuesday. Elvis Presley also died on August 16th, a Tuesday, 39 years later. Like Robert Johnson, Elvis Presley was born in Mississippi. He was three years old when Robert Johnson died. There is no birth certificate for Robert Johnson. His half-sister said he was born in 1911. The state of Mississippi was not required to keep birth or death certificates until 1912. Things I wrote in my notebook at the graveside of Robert Johnson. Pale blue sky, muddy hollow, scattered graveyard, puddles of water, pine trees, pecan tree, rusty leaves, water in the grooved ridges of the field. It hurts to get stung in the neck by a bee. Mm, thank you. Beautiful, thank you. Um, we're going to come back to a, a number of the things that you touch on there, particularly that phrase, some people say, that way of uh, clouding the waters of what's true and what isn't. That's going to be one of the things we will return to. But for now, Tina, take Kira, it away. Kira, thank you. Um, so I'm just going to start with the... I've been sitting here thinking, epigraph or epitaph? I always get this one, it's epigraph, isn't it? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's a really epitaph. different... Yeah, it's a really, <laughs> it's a really different thing. I don't want to get mm. that wrong. Um, so it's from the Daily News, London, 6 April 1846. And this is entirely a fiction, entirely made up. But this person, there's a real person who um, was one of the jumping off points for the book. And this is a quote about him in the Daily Mail, uh, Daily News from London. He speaks English so well that at first we took him to be some English boy dressed in savage costume, some intruder from a masquerade. We were, however, mistaken. He reads and writes English as well as any boy his age and is particularly fond of joking. In fact, we have seen many English boys much more stupid, more ignorant than this specimen of the New Zealanders. Chapter one. I am not yet 17 years of age, but I have a thought that I may be dying. They don't say that, of course, but I can read it in their many kindnesses and the way they look at one another when I speak of the future. Perhaps I do not need their confirmation, for surely I wouldn't see all I can in the night if I weren't playing in the shadow of death. So when they come and ask about my life, I tell them all, what else is there for me to do? I don't feel it then, the brokenness of my own body. I feel only the brokenness of the world. From here in the shadows, I can see a piece of London sky and the roofs of countless houses. The curtain is flimsy, and I have asked Miss Hearing to, send, to leave it aside, for I am so high in this room, and the sky is my only companion these many hours. At night, I see the beetle making his slow, determined way between cracks. I smell the city rising then, black smoke, the underlying reek of piss and sweat, the, the sweetness of hung meat and fruit piled high in storage for the morning. It's slow rot, my own. The street waits and the beetle crawls leg over leg down the brick side of the house. From his vantage point, I see it all, every detail in the mortared wall, the coal dust that covers it, the wide expanse of London town, lights shimmering along the Thames and out into a wide panorama more delightful than even the sights of the Colosseum. I wish I could tell you the air is fresh here, but no. It is stench and smoke and fog rising, obscuring the pretty lights. Yet I love it, love this dark and horrid town, 
feel the awe rising even beside the dread. It is a place of dreams. Sometimes I follow the moth who finds her way on swells of air, a ship-catching currents established lifetimes ago, knocked sideways by the draft of a cab passing, the hot air expelled from a gelding's nostrils. The moon is different here, not a clean, clear stream, but a wide and silty river. She lends her light all the same so that I might see the faces that pass, and they pain me, it's true, for every face is one I know, and I cannot say whether they are living or dead. I see all the misses and misters on the streets of London and the ones of Port Nicholson. The worst of it is when I see the tattooed face or hear the music of the garden orchestra, see the gaudily dressed couples dancing circles, the spectre of shows pitching illusions into the air, tricks of light, mechanical wonders, wax figures bearing features I knew for the first few years of my life. I couldn't even remember my mother's face until I was confined to my bed. And now I see her every night, a doll animated by a wind-up box, the acrobats then, and my friends from the card table, warrior men and women of my childish and dark memories from before I learnt about the world of books and ships. My shipmen, both loved and feared, they don't speak, my friends and enemies and loved ones, but I know they are waiting. I know the streets below are teeming with them, even when the hour grows late and all decent men should be in their own beds. It is as if I travel through the old battles each night until I reach him. And though I know not whether he still walks the solid earth, I always find him. Billy Neptune, even now grinning and ready to make fun. He is the only one that sees me. Hear me, good fellow, he calls. Back to your bed. What is your business out here amongst the filth of the streets? Not the dirt, mind you. I mean people like us. At this he laughs his short, booming laugh a sound that breaks open in my chest like an egg spilling its warm yellow centre. What is it like? I ask him every night. Or how are you? But he doesn't answer. Ah, hear me, he says. What games have we made, we made of it, eh? My fine friend, what games? And he goes on his way, and I go on mine, circling the restless world. Beautiful. So the, the question that immediately rises uh, in my mind and that I'm actually going to ask both of you is what is the spark behind wanting to write about 19th century Māori going to London? <laughs> you, you start, yours is, yours is tuakana to mine. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this painting in a book um, when I was researching my second novel, Hibiscus Coast. Uh, in the museum, I saw James Cowan's book, Pictures of Old New Zealand with the Lindale Portraits. And then I found out Paratane Temanu is a tūpuna, read his little oral history of his life, saw what he remembered fighting with Hongi Heka um, and basically going to London to meet Queen Victoria. And that just sent me off following the trail, really, I suppose. How, how could you not want to write a book about I that? I know, <laughs> it was really good. And, um, yeah, and you just you just become really entranced by it and where they went and what they did and who they met. And mm. We've got so many accounts of, of our English ancestors coming to New Zealand and seeing this land and these people for the first time. So to reverse that mm. is really powerful. I mean, was mm. that part of the attraction for you? Yeah, I mean, in a funny way, it was related in, in the, that it was kind of the art museum world that mm -hmm. got me there, but it was a bit more convoluted in that I, was, um, I had um, seen a book about um, Sarah Bartman, who was a Koiko woman who was exhibited in the Egyptian Hall, um, among other places. She was exhibited all over the place and um, had been... So, you know, horrified, but also surprised that I didn't know more about this. And so that triggered um, some kind of what, what would she have seen? It was a bio, biographical piece that I saw. And what would, what would she see through her eyes? Which is not something I could write. That's not something I could mm. um, claim, even if I spent years researching it. So I thought, well, what would a Māori person have seen? And if they had seen this world of exhibitions of human beings and... Um, and I knew that Māori were travelling a lot. Mm -hmm. this, this idea of curiosity, they immediately started going out into the world as soon as <coughs> ships started came, coming here. They got on the mm -hmm. ships and went there. So I knew that was a thing. And then I went to a, a symposium where I heard about a young man who the, who the uh, 
epigraph was about, um, who uh, his name was Hemi Pumari, mm. and um, he was taken there with George French Angus's artworks in the 1840s. So that's when I kind of went ding. That's the that's the eyes, mm. and and so I made up a, a character who um, kind of gets the same journey to get to, to London and has some of those, I guess, that, that epi, epigraph, do I have to keep saying it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> every single time, I doubt it. Um, uh, that really is, that's why it's at the front of the book, because this, this idea of this person who um, is so, uh, so clever and funny and is able to mimic different cultures mm. so well as a teenager mm. that the, the media at the time are going, oh, well, oh, he's actually a, a, a savage. He's actually, and and so that that he called into doubt their assumptions about um, who native people were. So mm. yeah, I was riveted. Yeah, <laughs> and down the research rabbit hole you go, right? Yes, yeah. It's <laughs> always. A, I mean, one of the one of the pivotal moments in both of your books, uh, you know, they, is the moment of arrival in London, mm. like the 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 scene. Like, talk us through what what that was like to try and imagine that. Like, you know, coming from Aotearoa to London, the mm. centre of the the kind of world mm. at that time. What was that? Because you was arrived by ship as well, mm, and, uh, mm. and then comes into the east part of London. Yeah, yeah, it's enormously hard to. I was just worried about cliche and everything mm. that's ever been written before about coming into London <laughs> on a ship. Were you worried about that? Yeah, and I was trying to imagine this the the sort of forest of forest ships. You know, that the river would have been completely full. Yeah, mm. and that it was just a, an incredibly different looking city from the one it is now. Yeah. And also everything's so dirty, like St Paul's is black, you know, with dirt. Mm. And everything was just dirty and noisy and incredibly bustling. And for people like, like Paratene Temanu, who'd grown up in Nungaroo, north of Auckland, and then on Little Barrier, and he was used to going, for, yeah, pristine <laughs> places and going by boat from places to places. And then they come to England and get on a steam train, mm. which must have felt like hurtling. Mm. You know, so you're really trying to make that imaginative leap of what's it like, not just, I mean, if we were dropped now into 19th century London, which would be brilliant, you know. <laughs> we can arrange that. Oh, yeah. That would be, that would to be amazing. Directors. <laughs> um, but then with a, this very different point of view, a really different way of, of seeing and experiencing and knowing the world. Yeah. Mm. But, I Yeah, so... You do an enormous amount of research. I was looking at a lot of paintings, um, reading stuff, and the research is endless. And so I was always a bit worried. When I had my first British readers, I was like, phew, they didn't think uh, it was completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But um, but I had a really interesting experience when the first time I went to a really overpopulated Asian city was... Mm -hmm. um, Taipei, mm -hmm. and I actually felt physically ill when I arrived because I'd never been in a city like that, and I and I used that to access mm -hmm. the emotion of coming into a city where it's all built up. You've never seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. um, you just think, how how are they living? And you, it goes for miles, and you just. So I thought, well, maybe that could equate with the kind of feeling they would have had back then coming into... Yeah, absolutely. Like I mean, we talk about research as going to the archives and digging out papers, but it's also about digging in your own memory, right? Digging in your own emotional experiences and associations. And looking at pictures as well, I was just thinking, I looked at the engravings of Gustave Doré of London. That They were very, very mm -hmm. helpful. And mm -hmm. also a book written by a Chinese poet in the 20s describing mm. the smog the fog and the smog, that was really, really helpful. Right. So, yeah, looking at outside perspectives yeah. to get that viewpoint. Um, one of the things about curiosity and research is that, as you said, Tina, it can go forever. You know, that each lead leads to something else, which leads to something else. Every book can spin off into seven other books. How did you draw a, the, the kind of parameters of what you wanted to cover? Because in my reading of it, at least, your novel is very much about the interpersonal relationships. It's not just the setting in London and those experiences with England. It's, it's in between. So, you know, how did you stop yourself from just researching forever? I think it was a deadline from Penguin, actually. <laughs> I really do. I think there was a lot of mean shouting and emails. <laughs> and, and at some point, you actually have to write books and not just mm -hmm. say, I'm writing it. You mm -hmm. actually have yeah. to finish it. Yeah. Yes. Um, but for me, it was just finding the structure. When I 
when I, and sorry, some of you probably heard about me talk about this before, but it was thinking about Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino, mm -hmm. which is a lot of conversations between Marco Polo and, and the Great Khan. And when that was kind of flopping around in my head, thinking about what if Lindauer and Paratene meet and they have a series of days where the painting is taking place, which is not true, it was painted from a photograph. But what if these two men, neither of whom are English speakers or native English speakers, um, neither of whom really belong in New Zealand for, you know, because by the 1880s, Paratene was an outsider in his own native land. Mm -hmm. And Lindell obviously was an outsider. What if they come together and have these sort of short conversations or just times when Paratene reflects and when that structure clicked into place for me, I could sit down and write the book. Mm. I see, I see. So, mm. and I think what really clicks for readers as well, certainly for me and other people I've spoken to, is we know these paintings, we know these images, but we know them as flat images. Mm -hmm. So to actually go into the psychology, the history, mm. uh, and the really complex personal dynamics of that. Mm. I mean, was there, was there a process like that at work with you? you know, yeah, you... I was just picking up on Paul, Paula said, what if? And mm. I kind of was researching, researching, and and you know you have a bit of anxiety about a getting it right and 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 b actually being able to give this world um, the the qualities it needs for the story. But actually, in the end, I had to kind of go, okay, stop now with reality. Like mm. real, reality's that's enough of that. And mm. so, when you're basing it on a real person <laughs> as well, you've got you've got a lot of anxiety about um, representing that real person. So I had to say to myself really actively, this is not the real person. Right. You, you can go now, like let, I had to kind of give myself permission <laughs> to, um, to make stuff up. What mm. if, what if, what if, what if, mm. like, you know, um, the places I wanted to go mostly hadn't been written about mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at least in New Zealand, at least what I've read. So um, mm. yeah, just, okay, it's time to imagine. You've got, and I, I mean, the thing about the research though that became most useful to me was um, I found a, a writer, um, a, historical, a historian called Judith Flanders, um, who did the domestic world of, mm -hmm. of Victorian uh, London. Yeah. So what happens inside the house? What does a room look mm -hmm. like? Because every time my characters went into a room, I mm -hmm. had to stop and do research. Like, yeah. I really couldn't see it. And in the end, ha hardly any of that actually lands in the book, but I had to imagine it to be able to give it life. Mm. Um, and, like, what would they put on their dinner table? And a lot of our assumptions about what, Victorians ate and like um, when they ate were mm. all um, not what she was writing in hers. So that was really helpful. And Lee Jackson would write about the filth. He's written a book called The Filth, Filth of London or something like that. But yeah, those those mm. writers are really helpful to just the, the the stuff of life. It's all about the details, mm. really. I am really interested in that point where you say you had to give yourself permission to depart from reality. Because on the one hand, you could say, well, you could aim for reality, but you're still not going to get there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, whatever we can come up with as writers is still going to fall short of the actual reality of a person's life. Yeah. But then on the other hand, to fully depart and take it in really imaginative directions. I mean, how far do you think you push, I mean, Rangatira specifically, but also in your other work? I mean, obviously in, in False River, there's a lot of things that have begun with truth and ended in fiction. Um, how do you give yourself permission to actually depart from what happened? Well, if, if I'm writing fiction, then, yeah, then I can do what I want. So I think what Nick's meaning is that I steal things quite freely from I wasn't going to say it, but... <laughs> <laughs> so in one story, The Third Snow, the apartment in Rome where it's set is one that my sister's friends have rented, so I've got a really clear view of it. There was also something a bit silly that someone said to me once about the white feathers of a seagull, and it goes, um, my cousin's husband, his job is working with titanium dioxide. He's a... A toxicologist, so that's the job. I, I mean, I've, I'm really interested in people's jobs, so I ask them lots of questions, then mm. I just steal it all and give it to a character. Um, mm. So you're just kind of grabbing as you go along and mm -hmm. thinking this will be useful, and you don't know when and where, but mm -hmm. then it can just be used in a story. So it means your friends have to be careful what they say around you? They might end up in the next... Chapter. I think my enemies have to be more careful. Okay. <laughs> um, there also, there's a rant that one of the very unpleasant characters in the story has. He's standing in front of a shop in Rome, and it's one of these, you know, high fashion brands with a Jeff Koons display, the artist. 
and it has uses the word da Vinci instead of Leonardo, and he's just a full-on rant about it, mm. which is just taken from myself. It's a rant <laughs> I've had myself <laughs> on Queen Street, not necessarily while drunk, and I'm like, yeah, I really want this out in the world, so here you are. <laughs> Take it. So you can steal from yourself as well. Interesting. You can actually cannibalise your own life as you go. Yeah. Um, when, when it comes to cannibalising your own life as Māori, there are certain aspects that people expect to see on display. And this is something that really comes through in the books. I mean, there's a wonderful scene um, in your novel uh, where Hemi uh, performs a wero. So he's kind of challenged uh, and he responds in kind. And it's a really interesting kind of fine line between him just responding out of a very deep and instinctual place and also being very performative. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, well, really late in writing the book, I've figured out that it's actually about performance mm. of identity, which I'm not like a, I'm not, that's, that's a very strange world for me to be thinking about and I realise. Isn't that what you're doing right now? Yes. So yeah, yeah, you have to like you, these are the things you, well, I, doing things like this, I definitely started to realise there's a person that comes on stage that does mm. this thing and now mm. it's gotten really weird because I just admitted it. Um, <laughs> and, and, that's, <laughs> and that's not who you are. Um, and of course, so when you're writing, I'm not actually consciously mining my life, but that comes mm. out on the page. Mm. Um, but it's a bit more, he's a bit more out there with it and he does this thing. But when you said that, I was thinking later on, he's actually asked, you know, did they make you dance? Mm. And he goes, oh, I did that. I put myself out there. Mm. I like, you know, there's that thing in you, especially he's a much, he's a much more performative person than I am. He really enjoys the, not the exhibition so much because he hasn't quite figured out what the exhibition is until he's in the middle of it, but mm. he enjoys meeting people. And, you know, this really charismatic figure that I saw mm. described, he likes he likes mimicking the, the English accent so that people don't know who he is. So mm. he's he's enjoying this moment. He does that wet all and he has a fun time. He's teasing the heck out of these guys. But when another person says, you know, this is why this situation might not be helpful for mm. our people, that's when he, he kind of goes, oh, I'm complicit in it. Mm. And so I was actually I was actually at that time talking about my own complicity in mm. the kinds of things that we do to perform or to um, just, just the way this world works, which mm. is, you know, contemporary um, kind of capitalist society. We're always kind of part of the stuff that we, we might critique it, but we're still part of mm. it, the way people are treated. So... Mm. And, and certainly having to produce yourself as an author in different contexts. And we're taking a, a bit of a segue here, but I think it, it connects. And I, you know, uh, Paula, you obviously you travel a lot. You, you've lived in many places around the world. You're a truly international citizen. Uh, do you ever have a sense of being asked to perform your identity? Gosh, it's a good question and a big one, isn't it? Mm. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, often people overseas don't have any clue about your identity. Mm. You know, you'll get annoyed in England when people ask you to say fish and chips. You know that <laughs> one? It's like, really? Really? Do we have to go, oh, fish and chops, how's that? Um, mm. So you're often asked to perform a New Zealand identity. Mm. And then if they find there's any hint of, of maori about you, that, that doesn't really translate overseas. Um, and for the, the Māori group I write about in Rangatira, it translated for some of them and not for others. So for mm. Paratene who had a moko, it was a nightmare mm. because anyone who had a moko was followed in the street and looked at. But a lot of the younger ones could kind of pass as just being, you know, sort of Italians, you know, just... And so it became a big issue for that group because their handlers, who were all gentlemen of the South Island, I hate to tell you, um, but they're from Nelson, don't worry, um, <laughs> kept forcing everyone to wear cloaks all the time so that they were dressed in costume. Nowadays, we go about not in costume, but often elsewhere, there's still that notion that that's, that's a true Indigenous identity. A true Indigenous identity comes in costume. Mm. And so if you're not wearing one, you can't possibly be one. Mm. And when I taught at the University of Sheffield, which I did before I came back here, um, you know our bios don't translate either when we have our iwi affiliation mm. behind them. In New Zealand, we know what that means. 
Overseas people are like, is this another name that you go by? <laughs> With all these other names you have, why are they so hard to say? And, you say, uh, and so once I said to some colleagues at the University of Sheffield, I said, oh, no, no, they're not other names. It's just a tribal identification. And one of them burst out laughing. A European colleague burst out laughing. She said, you're joking. What? Why was this funny? I know. And then, and then you realise how our context doesn't travel. Our context is our context. And we're really an unknown mm. entity elsewhere, unless we are appearing in a sort of a kapahaka guise. Mm. I mean, I think you, both of your books on this point really go to the heart of this question, because the, the, the performance is of with moko, it mm. is with the cloaks, with taiaha, with waiata, mm. with haka, with all these things that we identify as being stereotypically Māori. Um, and there was a moment, I think, that you guys are both writing about through that Victorian period where there was curiosity about the far-flung colonies and their indigenous peoples and their customs. Uh, does that still apply? I mean, does that apply to Maori stories, if not just identity? Are readers interested in either of your books internationally? And I have a sense that they are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... Um... Publishers aren't. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. The, I mean, Rangatira was published in Germany, mm -hmm. um, and I got loads of media coverage there, and it was really great, and people mm -hmm. were genuinely interested. But there, were, there was not a publishing company in England that would no. take the book. Mm -hmm. And I got lovely feedback mm -hmm. from a number of people mm -hmm. said, I personally love it, we can't sell it, it's mm -hmm. too Māori. But then I've met New Zealanders who tell me it's too Māori, so mm -hmm. if it's too Māori here, <laughs> it's going to be too Māori, you know? So it's like, it's okay, that's the deal you make when you write books. You write the thing you want to write. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, there's always a risk that it's going to be just the representation, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about these people that were walking between the reality and the representation. Mm -hmm. So there's always that risk in New Zealand and over there, but I kind of wish they were more interested, quite frankly. I, I feel like the world, you know, I think there are people, when I meet people, they are definitely interested, mm -hmm. but I agree that the, the whatever, the publishing world mm. haven't quite clicked. And that's not just for Māori, that's, you know, they still haven't, they, they want everything to be fit into their little um, categories. And if it doesn't, and when I say categories, I mean, sale categories, and if they don't mm -hmm. quite fit, then mm. it's a big risk, and, you know. Mm. And this today in the news is the alternate Nobel Academy, because, you know, they couldn't award the Nobel this year yes. because uh, apparently sex scandals. But um, I don't know why that means they couldn't award a prize, but anyway. No one wanted the prize. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> would you like the Nobel? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have but two. The, the, then they had pictures up of who they might be going to, Neil Gaiman or Murakami. It's like, great. Both good writers, but mm. it's like, what a, what a big shock. The Alternative Academy are going for two guys from the Northern Hemisphere because they're really underrepresented in the Nobel. If you're from the Southern Hemisphere, you're not, we're not translating. Mm. It's, it's still this way. It doesn't go this way. Mm. So we must do all we can to help each other, I think. Mm. Um, talk across, mm -hmm. to subvert, mm -hmm. to create our own stories and our own conversations mm -hmm. and not just wait for the gaze to turn on us we and to the expectation that mm. now you will be the one who gets mm. to perform. We might mm. be waiting quite a long time. Mm. Um, you know, you say we have to support each other and I know that both of you teach writing and you champion writing and you particularly, you know, Tina, in your recent um, Pautoko Manoa, uh, you really talk passionately about the need to encourage other stories from other perspectives than what we typically see. Uh, how brutally honest are you when you're encouraging those people who are starting out in writing? You know, you encourage people to tell their own stories on the one hand, and then we've also got this quarter over here about how hard it is to get our stories out there into the wider world. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that? I just want to say that um, Paul is doing an enormous amount with the Academy of New Zealand Literature and. Mm. Um, and, you know, and having conversations with people overseas. So, mm. yeah, I just mm. want to note that that's, that's happening. And so, and um, hopefully we will expand that conversation. So mm. your question again was... Yeah, so basically... Uh, oh, you mean to the people you teach? Um, you, yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you, Do the reality check. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, tell your own story. Be true to you. Yeah. As opposed to what's going to I'm a bit naive. I'm just like, do it. Just uh -huh. do it. Um, uh -huh. And then they say... Um, 
so how do I get to be where you are? And I say, there's no guarantees. You know, mm. like, there's, you know, there's no guarantees that there's a job mm. at any of this, at the end of any of this. But that goes for all writers. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Or there's no guarantees of publication, but we need your voice, we need your story, yeah. and I'll yep. go on at them. And especially if they run away, which often they do, they don't want, they're like, oh, and if, if they're good, I'll be like, honestly, we, and they'll say, but who am I? And I'll say, but there's no one else. Mm. Tell your story. Mm. So that's, yeah. Mm. yeah. How do you approach do you do? encouraging others to write? I'm a really mean teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of work in schools. And the big thing is persuading our young writers who are writers of tomorrow. So that's why Selena and I are both in schools a lot in Auckland, because you can't complain that the field is sparse when you haven't sown the seeds. You have to be in there when people are young but just to persuade them not to write derivative crap. Mm. That actually mm. their experience of the world, their point of view of the world, and then their abilities with language to articulate that, that's the thing that is their mm. voice. Mm. So they have to really work on language and writing. Mm. Vocabulary is a huge problem with our young writers. And I mean, I've got some Spanish, but if you said to me, try to articulate your view of the world in Spanish, I couldn't, but I could tell you, that I have a husband and a sister and a brother <laughs> and I live in a house and, you know, and so on and so forth because my vocabulary is so limited. Mm. So it's about engaging with language and with aspects of techniques so our young people have the tools and then the other aspect of it that we know about is saying to people, and I want to hear about your house where you hear the motorway noise day and night mm. and your family, which is not like necessarily the families you're reading about in books mm. and, you know, one girl told a story about her grandmother who makes all her own clothes out of any piece of fabric she can find, but she always sews them together with yellow thread. It's like, I want to read about your grandmother. I don't want to read about zombies or <laughs> what something that happens in the police station in Los Angeles, a place you've never been, but you've seen on TV. You know, I'm interested in your grandmother, who sounds a character, and really trying to work with students to say, I'm interested in you and your experience and your view of the world, and then I'm going to help you by giving you the tools to, to write better. What is it about zombies? <laughs> we, I, 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 do some, I teach some writing as well yeah. in Australia, and we have a blanket ban on work about <laughs> zombies. It's just across the board, we will not accept submissions that are about zombies. But it is because people are absorbing so much yeah. from elsewhere. So to teach yeah. people to look within their own histories. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking yeah. at me like I'm supposed to say something. <laughs> no. I, mean, that's the, I mean, that's the most interesting... Yeah, I mean, that, why should people be interested in New Zealand writing or Māori writing? Because there's, there's so much that remains to be written that hasn't... Yeah, why would you want the same story over and over when you've got all these stories that we, mm. you know... And if you are Wonderful. going to have zombies, I love that new show, Wellington Paranormal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. so brilliant. Yeah. Because it's saying, well, what if? <laughs> what if? But it's in Wellington. And yeah. Yeah, Wellington is very scary. <laughs> and it's extremely inventive and not, not derivative. It's, it's, it's parodying all those mm. cop shows that we mm. get on TV now. Yeah, you By the way, which is why I'm so familiar with Christchurch Airport, because it's always on Border Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite shows. Good, we're famous for something. Um, we are going to open it up to audience questions shortly, so if you've got anything that is uh, burning a hole in your brain that you would like oh, to ask these guys, please um, consider it now. And we do ask that you keep your questions relatively concise. Um, we have, we're, we're keeping a record for the longest question with a rising inflection at the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, just the... the, the, um, the I want to just talk very briefly uh, about this fiction fact divide again. And just to, to put it out there to you guys, I want to pose you a question. Who here is a fan of non-fiction painting? Oh, my God. You just blew my mind. Like. <laughs> <laughs> this is Teiji Cole's Exactly. <laughs> so in, in art, in painting, it doesn't mean a thing, right? It is not a, a criteria with which to judge a work. Whereas in writing, you know, fiction, non-fiction, is it true, is it not? We tie ourselves in knots about this. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I mean, obviously, you know, in, in False River, you, you've spoken about how you have taken these aspects of your own life 
uh, and just plonk them into fiction. But when it comes to writing about... Uh, actually, artfully interwoven. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is why she's a successful writer <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Um, so when you come to actually writing about your family, mm. you know, you have two very moving essays in here about your mother, your father. How do you approach truth in that? And because the point you're making about art is one that Teju Kola's made as well. I think mm. we have a different relationship with looking at art yeah. than we do with reading. Yeah. When we read a book, we want to know whether it's true or not because it will determine how we engage with it. Mm. So that's why there was so much fuss when James Fry published yeah. A Million Little Pieces. Yeah. It's all true. Oh, no, it's not. So my story of how I recovered from my addiction is actually not true. Mm. So it's fine as a novel. But as a, as a piece of nonfiction, it's a lie. Mm. Um, so in, the, in False River, they begin with short stories and they begin, I do, actually. Um, and then <laughs> we have, I know I'm just communal now. In the middle that are, are things that were published as stories but are actually essays and then just essays. Essays are really hard to write, I think, because you cannot hide. There is nowhere to hide. There are no mm. disguises to be mm. had. I can put a rant of mine into the mouth of a very unpleasant character in a short story and people can think he's unpleasant and ranting and ridiculous and that's okay, it's not me. But in nonfiction, it is me. Mm. And how I behave and what I think and how lazy I am and how conniving, how deceitful, how cowardly. It's, <laughs> just speaking theoretically, it's, it's, it's all there. That's there, there's nowhere to hide. Mm. Yeah, no, we've... I would agree about the non-fiction thing, the nowhere to hide. I mean, there are, there are, I think the longer you do it, the less room there is to hide because I've, you know, I'm working mm. on an essay collection at the moment and I used to employ little tricks to, to kind of tell the story without really telling the story and it was very artful and now I'm just like, here's the story. Plonk it in. Well, I've got more courage, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I do plonk. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, I'm trying, um, yeah, you, I'm dressing it up less. Um, sorry, dressing it up less. Um, but I, I, there's always there's always a a filter between what actually happened and um, what's on the page, and that's the language you use. Mm. But yeah, it, there is very little room to hide as well. It's one of those things where the more you talk about it, it just becomes this massive paradox and. <laughs> fiction, non-fiction, it's all just a continuum. And yeah. But sometimes yeah. people ask you questions about fictional characters mm. as though you believe what they believe and you, and it's like, no, this is a character with a mm. very distinct point of view that is not mine mm. yeah. and it can't possibly be mine. Mm. Mm. I suppose people find it hard, I mean, we all find it hard in a way when you've entered so passionately into a story, you've, you've taken that character as real and so you relate that back to the real author so you're answerable, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they're going to come to you if they have, you know, questions or concerns mm -hmm. or arguments and if you have questions or concerns or arguments, um, now is your time to shine. We have a couple of microphones that are going to be going around, um, so yeah, any questions at all, please uh, raise your hands. Yes. yes, we've got one down the back to start. And Thank, thanks so much. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, do you th and I do you think that your stories help people understand before differently now? And that sounds stupid, but the reason I'm asking is because I was thinking about um, Makariti Papakura, who was guide Rangi in, or Maggie, I mean, in Rotorua. But she's now the feature of the first. I was in Oxford last year, and the first black Oxford book has only just been published. And she's the cover. She's in the, she's in the, she's the front piece, and she inspired the author, Pamela Roberts, who found her because she studied ethnography in Oxford and ran a tutorial. And it's so moving, because all around the campus now, students have got her photo, like they have Frida, you know, stuck everywhere. And oh, she's wow. become this different thing. And that's why I love what you're both doing about how the past changes or it suddenly connects to now. I think that might be one of your so last questions. Is, is that That's the fine. question, how the, how the past speaks to the present? Yeah. That's 100% what I'm doing. I'm not interested in the past as a thing that happened back then. I'm only interested in what it means now. Um, I'm, I don't know how you feel about it, Paula. Um, how, what, 
how to elaborate on that. Yeah. Um, so there's the story of exhibition of humans. I don't think that's ended. I think we don't do it in museums anymore. I'm going to talk about it at the um, the, the tiny lecture at 4.40. At the, does anyone remember where it is? It's at a cafe. The last word. The last word. And so that's what my tiny lecture is about, is about how, you know, the, we have this things that look horrific to us now, but... It doesn't. T it's not very hard to find very similar ways of treating humans. Mm -hmm. You know, you just have to look at the television or the internet. Full stop. So, um, so, and there's you know there's bigger ramifications around that. But that's it. That's it at its most simplest. Um, it's most simple. I do know how to use the English. What did you, did you want to jump in on that one, or should we? We go can just go on. All right. Um, have a question here down the front, and then we'll come to you next. Uh, sorry, we come. We'll come this way. Oh, no. There was one oh, in the middle. You've got yeah, no yeah. authority. Yeah. I don't. No. Yeah. I always knew that. Tēnā koutou katoa, ka nui te miki a koutou moto a kōrero ananga tia ki a mātou i tēnē wāna reira tēnā koutou. I just like to say, um, well, ask you a question really, and I'll give a short footnote. Um, do we really have to worry about writing for the outside world? Are we looking for that book deal? No, that film. Or should, who should we be writing for? I mean, I wrote a memoir about my dysfunctional family, um, my naval father. It ended in, it started in our house in Blackpool. It ended at a kawemati on the naval marae up at Devonport when I carried my parents' picture on. But in the middle, right, there was a history of my parents in England, a history of the um, battle that the aircraft carrier was attacked in, a history of Japan, a history of the kamikaze culture, and then a whole journey to Japan where I spent a month there talking to people, right? Now, the whole book was virtually about nothing about New Zealand, and they couldn't sell it in Frankfurt, they couldn't sell it in Japan, they couldn't sell it anywhere but here. So, does that matter? Do you want to start? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel very strong. I say to my students that you write the books you want to write, and then you take the consequences of that. So if you want to write an airport novel with gold writing on the cover, and, and it's a, a thriller plot that meets all genre requirements, then you do that. And you'll sell quite a few, but don't grizzle that you're not being shortlisted for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. Right? We all take our, we all make our choices. However, at the same time as New Zealanders, if we're going to accept that our stories, a lot of our stories are written to exist within our own cultural context, then we can't then exhibit the cultural cringe of only being interested when our books achieve success elsewhere. Mm. Mm. So The Luminaries comes out, it's a fine book, but no one's interested in it until it wins the Man Booker Prize, mm. and then suddenly every thousands are out. I'm like, why, we need judges in England to tell us it's a good book? Mm. What about our own book winners every year? We have fantastic books coming out in this country. Mm. We should care what our judges, who are you know, drawn from across our New Zealand society, see about the, the books that we have, rather than waiting mm -hmm. for prizes for which most New Zealand books are not eligible, because you have to be published in London. So we're waiting for London publishers to decide which of our books get in front of European judges so that then we can get behind them. Mm -hmm. And we, and I, I hear this from students as well, saying, well, I don't really want to read a New Zealand book. You know, you want to read something that's got a big marketing campaign behind it from another country. Mm. So I think it's a question of, of embracing who we are in every way as writers and as readers. Mm. Yeah, um, I just went blank. I was totally thinking really big thoughts, I promise you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, I'm kind of in the middle of that conversation because my book is set in London and I think that it has something to say to the people that live there and it's about their history. It's our history too, but it's their history. Um, and in a larger sense, I think the Indigenous voice has something to say uh, to those people who laugh when you say that, when you say who you are. So um, I, I strongly believe that, that we should be heard in the world. At the same time, now that I'm involved in that conversation, I'm caring less and less as time goes on about it, because it's, it's like I also believe that our books are on par with anything that I've seen overseas. Um, and so um, I want those people to have a living as well, but at the same time, I, you kind of get to a point where it's just like you, you kind of push a bit and then you kind of 
I don't know. I just, I don't want to care about it that much. I no. understand the question. Um, but I, but when I think about the big picture, when I think about our, our stories and what we have to offer the world, it's about, we do live in this world that's intimately connected still with the, the colonisers and, and maybe, maybe, you know, one thing that I've been seeing said quite a lot is that they aren't, um, as aware of, of all the stuff that we've been through. I was thinking when I went to spend some time there doing research, you know, we spend our entire lives thinking about the colonize, mm. colonization and, and, and do they ever think about it? And I don't think most of them do, you know, mm. like they don't have to. And so it might, it might be surprising and interesting for them to read some of our stories. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I have a question here at the front. <laughs> see, see that authority? <laughs> two over there. Does this work? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. I want to. You, but you, you have to hold it here. Gotta hold it up to your mouth. Sings. Sorry. I your first album. I want to ask you about. Oh yes. Yep. Bone sings. Mm -hmm. um, I believe you must have had enormous courage. Thank you. It. Yeah, thank you. And I'm curious as to what kind of response you have had from the Tangata Whenua. Um, you, you very cleverly didn't write it, and you mentioned it before about what we see today in the past, and you very cleverly wrote it simply as it was, whereas you had one character who didn't like it, and the, that's the two mm, brother and mm. sister. And the other character who just was overcome and overwhelmed. And I think it's the most important book about that subject that's been written in Thank you. I mean, it, it, thank you. I mean, it depends um, what you mean by Tangas Whenua. I, I asked the people of or the Moriori people of Rekohu, and I didn't ask. I didn't ask everybody because I could keep asking permission, and then I might not finish the book. Um, and courage is courage slash stupidity. But um, I didn't get a bad reaction. Uh, I actually got really wonderful reactions, and I think that people that um, might not be happy haven't confronted me. But I'm always a bit worried about uh, whether a, a piece of any writing is going to hurt rather than help a situation. So I tend to kind of think about that quite a lot. And um, yeah, no, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation and on, ongoing discomfort. It never, it never really goes away, that discomfort with um, putting yourself out there like that, or not me, but putting a story out there like that. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Some other questions over, over here. Kia ora. In the context of blurring fiction with non-fiction, have either of you encountered people from your lives, rightly or wrongly, identifying themselves as the source <laughs> of one of your stories, and has it led to any negative reactions? I haven't, so maybe you have. Uh, I tend to find everyone I know is really narcissistic, so they're always seeing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> this is me, isn't it? I'm like, no, not at all. Um, but sometimes people say to me, here, I've got a story for you. I'll ask people permission if I'm um, one, of, one of my friends. For that same story, The Third Snow, mm. she was once falsely accused of having an affair but with another couple who had their own thing going on. The, the husband lied and said he was having an affair with her in order to have this psycho drum with his wife. And I said to her, it's such a good story. Would you mind if I had it? Mm -hmm. And she said, no, fine, please. So we went through it all again so I could get all the details. Um, but that's for fiction, for fact. I mean, when I wrote those essays about my, my mother dying and my father dying, I got my brother and sister to read them because they're both mentioned in them. And mm. I wanted to make sure that, that they were happy or unhappy. My brother got me to change one thing, one really small, bizarre thing that didn't even relate to him. But yeah, mm. I'd refer to me and my husband as the B team. My sister was the A-team with my father. He'd take her to the doctors. If she wasn't available, B-team. 
implicitly my brother was the seat. <laughs> and that's probably why he got me to take it out. He said, no, there was no preference. I'm like, oh, there was, there was. But that was all he wanted to take out. But I did that. I mean, some writers I know go to Big Lance, Anita Heiss, the Aboriginal Australian writer, when she was writing her memoir, she sent it to anyone who was mentioned to get their permission. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. But then you, again, have to take the consequences. You might hurt people. Mm. You might get sued, you know, especially if you mention Don Brash, you know, you might get sued. <laughs> um, so you just have to weigh up. Mm. Yeah. There's an Australian writer who's been a guest at this festival, Helen Garner, uh, who's a wonderful writer. She says, every time I write a book, I lose a husband. <laughs> <laughs> Is she poisoning them? <laughs> <laughs> Only metaphorically. <laughs> We've got time for one more question, maybe two. I just wanted to sh uh, show you what it's like to be an Indian writer in, in a country like New Zealand. Because the minute, because I write about Indian, I use Indian characters. In, and I wrote a story about a woman who, whose husband was a terrorist in the, uh, you know, in, in Sri Lanka. And the judge came back to this for a competition. Oh, this story sounds autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> the minute you are a minority like mm -hmm. an Indian and you use your own, you know, mm -hmm. ethnic background, this is what happens. But I've got another short question. I heard coming home on radio. Oh, it's and on our I week, just yeah. couldn't wait for the next it's a little book by itself. On Coming Home was on Radio New Zealand last week in five instalments. Um, it's a little book published by Bridget Williams Books. I think it's only $15. Do they have it here? Do they have it here? I've, sto I've stopped looking to see if my books are on sales at festivals. It's too depressing, you know? <laughs> because they've all sold out. Yeah, they've all sold out. And they've all sold out of all bookshops as well. So, you know, um, hopefully it's here. <laughs> but you can get it. It is in print and it can be ordered. That's very kind of you. So I was just going to say to you, I was teaching this week at Alfriston College in Manurewa in South Auckland, and a very multicultural group of students, and we were coming up with character names. And one of the students, Prisha, said to me, she said, uh, Miss, is it all right if we use ethnic names? <laughs> and I said to her, all names are ethnic. <laughs> so, I said, don't let anyone ever tell you you have an ethnic name, because if someone's called Anne or John, they have an ethnic name as well. <laughs> So it's just trying to get away from that notion that, yeah, some people in New Zealand are ethnic and some are not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we can squeeze one more in if we have any final... Well, it's sort of connected, I think, um, Pura Taiko, was um, how important is it, or is it important for you to be, to relate to the Tangata Whenua yourselves as writing about members of the um, Tangata Whenua? Are you saying that... identify as, as Maori. So if we didn't, would, are you talking about... Yes, so uh, if which, I, for example, decided to write about Nangi Papakura, because I went and discovered her in Oddington mm -hmm. in the UK, and I, it was, you know, I could have decided to write uh, about her at so, that stage. So if I'm understanding correctly, the question is, um, if you are not Maori, uh, or or of whatever uh, group that you wish to write about, yes. what are your what are the ethics of? No, is it important uh -huh. to you to feel Maori um, when you're writing about Maori? I mean, it is a big ethical question, I think, generally in Indigenous writing around the world. When Ian Fraser published his book called On the Res, which is about the Pine Ridge Reservation in, in South Dakota, a place I've been, it's the single poorest county in the U.S. And um, lots of Indigenous writers were really angry about it, including Sherman Alexi, who mm. apparently we can't mention anymore mm. because of mm. this. Um, um, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I may have to report. <laughs> it's the second time. Port third. Third. Um, <laughs> but he said, now that Ian Frazier's written the book, nobody else can write it. The book about Pine Ridge has been written by a non-Indigenous writer mm. so who was an outsider there. So that's that line of argument. That's any non-Indigenous writer writing about an Indigenous subject is taking that story away. However, the other side is, mm. as creative imaginative people, as artists, you are often drawn very strongly to a subject and you are the person to write that book. 
but it is a thorny political and ethical yeah, area. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the other day I said I couldn't, um, I couldn't just write stories about who I represent, like, um, um, you know, a, a woman my age who has my ethnic background, mm. who um, has my life experiences. Of course, that's that that's a nonsense, but. Um, looking at Sarah Bartman as a koikoi woman, there's no way I can access that reality. So um, uh, I know that very strongly. So when you're in the position, you have to make the, you have to make the call on whether you're actually going to do justice to that mm. position. And unfortunately, some people make perhaps the incorrect call. So so you just have to be like you have to be deeply thinking about it. That's why it takes like four or five years sometimes, or Ten years, even some sometimes, for people to write the books. But if if you're writing a rich world, it's going to have lots of different ethnic groups and genders and positions. Um, but it, yeah, can you if you if you especially if you're doing it, yeah, can you can you occupy that position? Can you do justice to it? Would be the question you have to ask yourself. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. Um, Everyone, thank you. We are out of time. Before we clap, um, the, 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 the important take home is their books. <laughs> uh, they will be signing in the foyer. So if you have further questions or follow up or just want their autograph uh, scribbled, uh, please do join them in the foyer afterwards. And please join me now in thanking Tina Makarete and Paul Myers. <laughs>